Easter greetings and welcome to this web forum on April 17th presented by the Lumen Christi Institute and America Media. My name is Michael Le Chevalier and I'm Associate Director of the Lumen Christi Institute. I would like to thank the other Catholic centers and organizations that have co-sponsored and publicized this event, which we offer as a memorial to Archbishop Francis Cardinal George, OMI, on the fifth anniversary of his death. While Francis George was largely unknown when he was named as Archbishop of Chicago in April 1997, the gifts he brought to his office allowed him to emerge as an intellectual leader among American bishops, serving from 2007 to 2010 as president of the US Catholic Conference of Bishops. Growing up in a working class family on Chicago's Northwest side, Francis George's own life was transformed by an earlier epidemic when he was stricken with polio. This indirectly led him to study in the high school seminary of the Oblates of Mary Immaculate, and then to enter that order. He later served in the number two position as vicar general in the order, where he visited and supported priests working with the poorest of the poor. In a rare comment on his own disability, he would remark, I know how to say I wear leg brace, I wear a leg brace in dozens of languages. After his ordination as a priest, he completed a doctorate in philosophy at Tulane University, where he chose to study because of its strength in American philosophy and pragmatism. He explained that when he read American pragmatists such as John Dewey and William James, he said to himself, this is how I think, meaning this is how we as Americans naturally think. But he said, because he had been trained in the Catholic philosophical and theological traditions, he had been given the basis for critically engaging both American pragmatism and his own natural way of thinking. This makes him an especially lucid guide to the topic of our event today, which seeks to honor him by both engaging and building on his thought. The Lumen Christi Institute honors Cardinal George as its founder. Two months after his appointment as Archbishop of Chicago, Francis George gave his blessing on a project developed by Catholic scholars at the University of Chicago to engage the secular university with Catholic thought. From its incorporation as a Catholic institution recognized by the Archdiocese in 1997, until his death, he was closely involved with the work of the Lumen Christi Institute. While the Institute receive, does not receive funding from the Archdiocese, Cardinal George contributed personally to supporting it, including from funds that he received, um, that he received from the Knights of Columbus when they honored him with its highest award after the final months, in the final months of his life. At this point, the Cardinal would want us to invite you to also join him in supporting our work by making a financial contribution to the Institute, which you can do via our website, www.lumenchristi.org. If Francis George was part of the life of the Lumen Christi Institute, it also played a vital role in his life by cajoling him and organizing him to harvest the texts and ideas of the many lectures he gave as Archbishop into three books. The first book, the final book actually, A Godly Humanism was finished two weeks before he died. His first book, The Difference God Makes on the Church and American Culture and his final book on faith and public life, God in Action. It is especially this last book that our three presenters today have been asked to consider in their opening remarks. Now, it is my pleasure to invite them to turn on their screens um, and to unmute themselves. 
um, so that I may briefly introduce them, our distinguished panel. Russell Hittinger is senior fellow at the Lumen Christi Institute, visiting fellow in the Committee on Social Thought at the University of Chicago, and professor emeritus of Catholic studies and law at the University of Tulsa. He's also ordinarius of the Pontifical Academy of the Social Sciences and the Pontifical Academy of St. Thomas Aquinas. Hittinger is the author of many books, including a critique of the new natural law theory, the first graces, rediscovering natural law in a post-Christian age, Thomas Aquinas and the rule of law, and most recently forthcoming, Paper Wars, Catholic Social Doctrine and the Modern State. Stephen Schneck is retired professor of politics at the Catholic University of America, where he, is, he was also director of CUA's Institute for Policy Research and Catholic Studies. He is the author of several books and articles in the field of political philosophy, including Person and Polis, Max Scheler's Personalism as Political Theory, and a recently edited volume, Letting Be, Fred Delamer's Cosmopolitical Vision. He was a founding board member of Catholics and Alliance for the Common Good and is currently the executive director of Franciscan Action Network in Washington, DC. Teresa Smart is an assistant professor in the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University, specializing in ancient and medieval political philosophy. Her current book project explores the ethics of citizenship in Thomas Aquinas, especially tensions between political and moral commitments. She engages in research on virtue ethics, natural law, jurisprudence, liberal education, and Catholic social thought. Our conversation is moderated tonight by Father Matt Malone. Father Malone is the president and editor-in-chief of America Media. Um, Father Malone began his tenure on October 1st, 2012. Previously, he served for two years as an associate editor from 2007 to 2009, when he covered foreign policy and domestic politics. Father Malone entered the Society of Jesus in 2002 and was ordained a priest on June 9th, 2012 by Edward Cardinal Egan, late Archbishop of New York. From 1997 to 2002, he served as the founding deputy director of Mass Inc., an independent political think tank and co-publisher of Commonwealth, its award-winning review of politics, ideas, and civic life. Now, after the presentations from our panel today and a conversation moderated by Father Matt, we will present questions from the audience. For those participating by Zoom, you can pose questions at any time during the forum using the Q&A button, button at the bottom of your screen. It's my pleasure now to hand this forum over to Matt Malone um, and to take us into our conversation tonight. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, Michael. And my thanks to the Lumen Christi Institute for inviting me to be a part of this, uh, to join this conversation with such a distinguished uh, group of panelists uh, on this occasion, uh, which marks the fifth anniversary of Cardinal George's passing into eternal life. Um, it also by coincidence happens to be the anniversary of America Magazine. Today we turned 111 years old. And I first had occasion to meet Cardinal George because of something, a decision I made soon after becoming editor of America where uh, I chose to uh, change our style book and to prohibit the use of the words conservative, liberal, and moderate uh, as adjectives to modify the word Catholic uh, when we were speaking of our fellow Catholics in an ecclesial context. And it was really uh, an attempt uh, on my part to signal to our readers that uh, the kinds of partisanship and polarization of the thoughtless variety that we had seen 
the secular space uh, had had come into the church and we had to, in a more mindful and intentional way, try to avoid that. And that caught the attention of Cardinal George. And, uh, and it was then that I came to know him as a man and even better, I became, I really began to know his work in a deep way. Um, and uh, to understand that we shared this concern um, for, uh, especially from the Cardinal's point of view, to ensure that the church thinks of itself um, in categories that are proper to the church. Um, all of that, of course, organized by this very rich uh, philosophical and theological anthropology of Comunio that runs throughout his work. Well, I can't think of a uh, better topic to take up in a time of polarization, in a time of uh, ideological partisanship uh, in, a, in its most vicious forms, uh, at a time of uh, a global health crisis when we are forced to, in a sense, uh, self-atomize to remove ourselves from the community in the interests of the greater good. I can't think of a better uh, body of work to be talking about than Francis George's contributions to our um, to uh, a Catholic social thought in American public life. Um, and so it's a great pleasure to be here. We're gonna begin uh, our conversation by hearing from Professor Hittinger, who's going to uh, set the stage for our discussion. Thank you, Father Matt. Congratulations, by the way, on the 111th. Uh, when I first heard that number today, I thought it was 111 issues, but all the better <laughs> 111 years. I think what I'd like to do to kick off the discussion is focus on the word tradition. We have in the advertisement for this symposium, a, the American tradition, the Catholic tradition. And maybe I can set the stage for getting up to Cardinal George. Well, an American Catholic contribution to Catholic social thought was very slow to emerge. Uh, in the first place, there were very few Catholics in the United States in the 19th century. At the time of the American Constitution, 1787, there weren't even 25,000 in the United States. Uh, time of the Civil War, two and a half million. Uh, by the time of the Third Plenary Council of Baltimore, 1884, uh, six million. So those numbers mean something. There weren't enough Catholics to have a voice and they were not organized in such a way to acquire one, at least not very speedily. I think I can identify the first member of the tradition at least if we emphasize the word thought. And he wasn't a Catholic. He was a Protestant by upbringing and by a, a utopian by uh, certain sentiments. And that was Orestes Brownson who converted to the Catholic church in 1844 and began to channel uh, important Catholic uh, thinkers in Europe. For instance, Montalembert in, in France 
And several of the thinkers that in the 1840s and 1850s, Leo XIII, who was then Bishop at Perugia in Italy, would start channeling. He, he read deeply in Baroque era scholastic thought, mostly Jesuit, and published many essays on law, political order, social order. Remember, this was mid 19th century to late 19th century is the golden age of social theory, right? The social sciences were invented at this time. We have Durkheim and Marx and Comte, Fourier, Saint-Simon, Robert Owen, and slowly important Catholic voices in Europe. Luigi Topparelli, uh, Bishop von Kettler in Germany. So the first person on our shores to start thinking in social theory as a Catholic with Catholic sources was Orestes Brunson. But I think I can also tell you who was the first prelate. And by the way, the prelates were way, way behind the lay people in thinking about social theory. Prelates had a lot to do. Uh, organizing a church of such small numbers under such unfavorable political and economic circumstances. They had other things to be doing than thinking philosophically. But I'm pretty confident to say that Archbishop John Ireland begins the Episcopal tradition of thinking in social theory, Catholic social theory. Uh, he was born in Ireland in 1838, immigrated to Minnesota, dies in 1918. Uh, you can think of John Ireland as one part of the bookshelf, holding the books toward the 19th century and Cardinal George the next century because their, uh, their dates are almost identical. Cardinal George was born in 1937, right? 101 years after uh, John Ireland and died in 2015. Uh, they were both, by the way, Midwestern prelates who unusually became the archbishop of their hometown. In Ireland's case, it was St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, both of them were authors and intellectual leaders of their age, especially leaders of their fellow prelates. Although I have to say, neither of them was entirely successful being a political leader of their fellow bishops. Uh, both of them applied in serious ways the current pontifical social theory uh, to the American situation. In the case of Archbishop Ireland, that was Leo XIII. And in the case of Cardinal George, that was John Paul II. Uh, Ireland himself attended the two most important ecclesiastical councils of the 19th century. The first was Vatican I. He went there as, a, as a, an observer. Uh, in fact, he roomed with Isaac Hecker, the founder of the Paulists. Uh, and then he not only attended, but sort of dominated the third plenary Baltimore council, 1884. And it was at that council in 1884 that John Ireland delivered his great speech and I think this is the inauguration of the Episcopal tradition of uh, speaking on Catholic social doctrine. Uh, it was 90 minutes long. 
he delivered it from memory. It was entitled The Catholic Church and Civil Society, which was later published in a set of essays as The Church and Modern Society. In my view, it's the best 25 pages of philosophical text on social theory anyway, ever written by an American prelate. He takes some of the early encyclicals of Leo XIII and tries to understand what's worth the Catholic attention with regard to society. And he argues, we have to defend or track, first of all, discern and track the health of three societies, the marriage and domestic society, political society, by which he meant the United States and ecclesial society. To my knowledge, he's the first Catholic thinker to ever use the exact phrase, signs of the times. He said, our method has to be to discern the signs of the times and our measure must be what he called social happiness, especially with regard to the three necessary societies. And as an indication that there really is a kind of tradition here, I'm gonna mention seven or eight themes which are discussed ex extensively by Ireland, not only in that great speech, but in his other writings and by Francis George. Uh, first, they both pay attention to immigration. John Ireland, especially because he founded the Irish Catholic Colonization Association spent much of his life trying to get immigrants landing on the East Coast, settled in the Midwest, out toward the Rocky Mountains. Uh, Cardinal George picks that up in, under the term migration, the issue of migrants. Both of them treat the problem of assimilation of Catholics. I think they would have had different emphasis on that theme. Uh, Ireland was not frightened by the problem of assimilation. He didn't think it was to be a threat. Uh, Cardinal George lives in a different time, which we can discuss later. Uh, both of them take basically the same broad stance with regard to Catholic thought and America. And it can be summarized somewhat simplistically in this way. Um, the founders built better than they knew. American institutions have uh, are uh, brilliantly devised, but the philosophy and theology that animates these institutions is uh, far from the mark. Uh, Cardinal George will call it the soul that animates these institutions. Both of them were suspicious about legal and political tinkering with society. Uh, Archbishop Ireland, it was on the schools issue. Uh, Cardinal George, it was, it was the federal courts. They both treat extensively the problem of American individualism. Uh, they're both wary of the American practical bent toward business over thought, over reflection. Uh, Bishop Ireland said, they're too practical for their own good. Both of them track the existence of the three necessary societies, domestic, ecclesial, and political. 
And both argue that the American distinction between public and private is simply inadequate for understanding those institutions. They can't be conveniently tucked into a private public distinction. Both of them defend religious liberty as being a primary American issue. Uh, both of them were quite happy to channel and apply the, the pontifical social theory of their age. And both of them paid attention to the environment, surprisingly perhaps, but uh, uh, Archbishop Ireland was very much concerned with the environmental issue in the Great Plains, which in his lifetime had filled with settlers and had changed the, the entire environment and ecology of the Great Plains. Uh, so where does Cardinal George fit into that? Well, in his 1998 lecture at the University of Chicago, he, he was just appointed Cardinal Archbishop. He spoke on the topic, the role of the church in a pluralistic society. And after some introductory remarks, he said, he characterized himself as an American Catholic growing uneasy. And what made him uneasy was uh, those institutions that were well built once upon a time, even if the spirit or the thought or the philosophy that animates them was quite inferior to the Catholic tradition. I think Cardinal George had become convinced that it was not just the soul that needed some kind of medicine, but the institutions themselves did. You will notice in God in Action how much time he spends with the different branches of American government, but especially with the Supreme Court. Uh, Cardinal George uh, spends a lot of attention on anthropology. In fact, he flat out uh, argues that democracy is not capable of providing the anthropology necessary for democracy. And th this is something that uh, Archbishop, Archbishop Ireland a century before would, would have never thought <laughs> was needed in the public domain, that the Catholic Church would give lectures on anthropology to uh, American statesmen. But I think that's an indicator of something that's profoundly changed uh, in the tradition, a, a darker note, and also a more contemplative philosophical note of what Catholic social thinking must do to engage the American polity. There's much more to be said about Cardinal George but um, let, me, let me wrap it up right there for the time being. Okay, well, thank you very much, uh, Professor Hittinger. Uh, Professor Sneck, I think you are offering our next response. Um, thanks, uh, thank you, Father Matt, I really appreciate it. It's, it's an honor to speak today on the anniversary of Cardinal George's death. Uh, you know, I'm not a, a formal scholar of uh, Cardinal George and feel a little bit like an interloper today, but, uh, but nevertheless, I knew him pretty well uh, from a number of occasions and, and very much respected him. And 
uh, I, I can't uh, pass up the, the, the fact that this is the 111th anniversary of America Magazine as well. So uh, let me note in that regard that uh, um, this is uh, a magic number. I'm sorry, excuse me. Um, as I said, I'm not a scholar of Cardinal George. My background is in American political thought and in 19th and 20th century European philosophy. But like Cardinal George, this actually has been a kind of a trick for me over the years uh, to find an angle to consider what, for a want of a better word, might be uh, Americanism. Um, in fact, it's Americanism that I want to use as a, an entree to today's discussion. In um, 1899, um, Pope Leo XIII, who uh, was just referred to by, uh, by Russ, um, actually castigated uh, the American bishops in the American Catholic Church in general with a, a, a pretty famous letter entitled Testum Beno Benevolentiae Nostrae, um, which essentially is a letter uh, castigating the American church for what's called Americanism. And the curious thing is, I, I think that Cardinal George's thinking um, would be very much in keeping uh, with, um, with Pope Leo's critique. The communio theology that's at the heart of Cardinal George's thinking has a, a fundamental tension, I think, in many ways with some of the basic um, in fact, the foundational principles of what we think of as American political thought. Unlike um, the Catholic Americanizers who defended what might be called um, Americanism, um, those who sought over the years, for example, to square uh, Catholicism, uh, Catholic social and moral thought um, with American uh, thinking on a number of fronts, Cardinal George was really over the course of his life always sus suspicious about an easy fit um, between the principles of American thought and the, especially the practices of American thought and what we understand to be the basis of uh, Catholic moral and, and social thought. We've already mentioned a couple of those um, people whom I would call Americanizer. Um, Archbishop Ireland, for example, uh, I think in many ways can be pointed to as the, as the font of much of the Americanizing that takes place in the Catholic Church over the course of the 20th and into the 20th, uh, 21st century. We might also mention some well-known American Catholics like John Courtney Murray. Uh, you know, what these folks were, were concerned about was finding a way, a place for the uh, the Catholic Church to have a home in America, both culturally and politically uh, and economically. But the challenge for these Americanizers, as uh, Cardinal George, um, you know, repeated really throughout his works, are are, are really um, kind of manifold. Um, for example, the Catholic conception of Catholic positive conception of freedom is really quite different from the conception of freedom that the framers of the American Constitution talked about, which um, is generally called a, a negative conception of freedom. Now, similarly, the, the Catholic uh, idea of a human being social and corporate 
anthropology, which corresponds to our ideas of solidarity and the common good, is an idea that, uh, you know, on many levels uh, is, is, is really in a pretty sharp tension with an American emphasis on the individual and not just the individual, but the independent individual, the individual who is not dependent on the community, who is not dependent uh, on others, that um, lift yourself up by the own bootstraps kind of individualism uh, that uh, is often, um, well, uh, both idealized and, and caricaturized in, in American thought. And in addition, I would say a few other things, the uh, priority of duties over rights in Catholic thought, the foundation uh, of human thriving for Catholics is in caritas and harmonious cooperation, and not so much uh, in competition and in merit, which seems to be the, the predilection for the way that Americans approach um, those kinds of questions. So, my sense is that Cardinal George um, really got this tension between um, Catholic thinking and Americanism, you know, very profoundly. I think there's a deep well of Thomism in his thought. And uh, out of that Thomism, I think uh, he has a, um, you know, a, a really rich grasp uh, of, um, of, of the sense of community, of the sociality of the human person that informs his communal theology. And so herein, I believe, is found um, his great concern uh, that he, he illustrated over and over again, his great concern about American culture and about um, modern Western culture generally. You even see it in the way that he occasionally talks about about economics and business and his suspicion about commercial things. Let me read just a, a really quick passage from the book, God in Action. And this is, this is uh, from the chapter on commerce as a substitute for war on page uh, 158. He says there, as I said, this is just gonna be brief. The interpersonal, oh, sorry. We come from community and we are created for community. The interpersonal communion established and enhanced in the activity of work is therefore more important than the product that is produced. Um, yeah, that is at the heart really of, of, of so many aspects of Catholic social thought. But it's here too, thinking about this, um, about, about this critique in, um, Cardinal George's work, that I stumble a little bit over some unevenness in his analysis. And I, I hold this up as a, as a friend uh, to his thought. The Americanizers of our day aren't about so much about individual rights, I don't think. These aren't the Americanizers like um, Archbishop Ireland and, and John Courtney Murray. In fact, to my way of thinking, the Americanizers of our current day are primarily about economic things. They are the Americanizers that focus on economics, on property rights, on freedom to buy and sell as we please. These are the Americanizers who 
would uh, emphasize a, a, you know, a deference, even in moral regards, frankly, uh, to market forces. You know, I could name a number of people here. There are some, some, you know, prominent um, American Catholics that have taken up this kind of Americanization. I mentioned just just briefly people like George Weigel or Michael Novak, Robert Sirico, Sam Gregg, and I could mention many others. Cardinal George did not publicly engage in criticism of such Americanism. I, I think that fundamentally he, he understood its incompatibility with his own thinking. Uh, you could see that in several of the chapters in God in Action. But I remain a little bit curious about his reticence. He had an opportunity to speak about Americanization uh, as it relates to the church, about this Americanism as an ism. And he addressed it in terms of culture. But he was a little bit quiet about it in regards to economic things. And I would think going forward that it would be a great contribution to the development of Cardinal George's thought for future scholars to take on, um, well, let's call it a, a Georgian assessment of this form of Americanism as well. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, um, Professor Smart. Yes, thank you for having me. Um, I also feel as though I'm <laughs> new to Cardinal George, um, although I was very grateful to, to learn more about him in the process of preparing for this. Um, I was actually struck by Cardinal George's reflections on culture and his use of culture as the medium through which the church interacts with the state. And I find this interesting and it's kind of how I want to organize my own comments because this treatment of culture and the law culture religion matrix that George um, kind of constructs is modern and it's fairly recent within Catholic social thought. But it's also reflective of a strain of American thought that I think stretches back a lot further and can be traced to some of the earliest days of the Republic. So I'll just try to describe how Cardinal George draws these two strains together, but also what it is that he adds to the American tradition. Um, so first of all, the concept of culture itself is kind of strange and amorphous, and it's a bit difficult to pinpoint a, far, a formal definition. Um, but the Second Vatican Council is actually the first church document that I'm aware of to use this concept um, a great deal. In Gaudium et Spes in 1965, it draws upon an etymological link between culture and cultivation, which we might associate more with tomato plants, but which can also be applied to the cultivation of human nature as well as the physical world. Um, so culture is like our human environment and it consists of anything that contributes to the development of natural human capacities, bodily and spiritual for good or for ill as Cardinal George was um, want to point out. Um, now I'll just briefly note how George himself defines it in the book. He says that culture is the world that people in a given society make by what they do and how they do it. It's a human artifact brought into being by the practices and habits of a people, especially their purposive activity. 
So this includes activity really in all of the arenas of our life. Um, and what that activity expresses is more fundamental beliefs that frequently we aren't even conscious of about what human beings are and why human beings are and what the end of human life is. Um, so I actually think that George is following John Paul II in the way that he uses culture because conceptually um, the integration of different spheres of activity in George's book reminds me of the logic of Pope John Paul II's encyclical Centesimus Annus, uh, which he wrote in 1991. And in this encyclical, he's he's organizing the spheres of human activity in this way. Essentially, he talks about how economic practices or market forces need to be firmly circumscribed within a just juridical framework, um, specifically a democratic one, but that a juridical framework in order to be just must be buttressed by a moral culture. And that culture needs to be rectified by an adequate understanding of the human person. But an adequate understanding of the human person is only found in true religion and specifically in the person of Christ. So he kind of makes this move from economics to law, to culture, to religion, to Christ, the person of Christ. Um, and the way that the church infuses the secular sphere with divine life is through the medium of culture through reforming her members in the image of Christ, such that they can then reform the world likewise. So this isn't a direct, but it's an indirect means of interacting with the state. And this is something fairly new um, for the Catholic church. But it's interesting that there's kind of a longer standing tradition in the US of viewing the role of religion in a comparable manner. So the general argument here is that limited government of a democratic republican form lacks the resources to sustain itself over time. Its institutions and procedures, yes, they can help approximate justice and moderation, but they depend for their longevity on moral virtues that the government itself cannot provide. But religion and the moral practices of a people can. Um, so the Religion bears indirectly on government through shaping the hearts and the minds of the people. This is an argument that's kind of classically associated with Alexis de Tocqueville, whom Cardinal George references, but it also goes back, it's characteristic of many in the founding generation. George also quotes the famous line from Washington's farewell address, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. But what's interesting is that for Tocqueville and for many politicians, this acknowledgement of the role of religion is really just a sociological observation on, or it's a comment on the civic effect of religion. Cardinal George, I think, completes this sociological account by speaking from within the heart of the church. He explains exactly how it is that religion operates on the human heart and why it is that the church is so essential, why it is that the Catholic church in its more recent documents has, um, well, actually, no, stretching much further back, calls for the freedom of the church as an institution, why it is that natural virtue is not actually enough to get the civic effects that you're looking for. Um, and actually, the encyclical that 
um, Professor Schneck mentioned where Poplio criticizes Americanism, one of the trends he criticizes is actually an overesteem of natural virtue, as he puts it. Um, so in, in the context, he's actually considering an American tendency to kind of turn inward and make of oneself a spiritual authority rather than obey external authorities or seek counsel in the form of spiritual direction from representatives of the church. Um, it's this kind of more Protestant idea that each person inter interprets the Holy Spirit's movements for herself. Um, well, Poplio actually likens that to a kind of Pelagianism, and he insists that to practice virtue, there is, quote, absolute need of the assistance of the Holy Spirit. Natural virtues must be seconded by divine grace. So that's kind of wandering away from Cardinal George, but the point is that he would agree he would agree that natural virtue alone is not sufficient to steer culture properly because in the absence of grace, it can't generate the kind of interpersonal communion necessary for human society. Um, so as Professor Schneck also mentioned, George draws upon a communio theology, one that recognizes that in receiving our existence from the divine, we inherently exist in a relation of dependence on him called to participate in his life through the acceptance of grace. And not just that, but grace is actually efficacious in transforming human relationships because it revolutionizes our self-understanding by leading us to exist in Christ and through Christ, but also in and through each other because living in friendship with Christ means loving all that he loves. Um, so love of enemy and forgiveness flow from this divine love. And these are the dispositions that are so indispensable for civil society, for counterbalancing kind of the more corrupting effects of our political culture. Um, and by infusing the culture, these are the dispositions that can make up for some of the deficits of law. But another way that Cardinal George adds to the American tradition that sees the effect of religion as something indirect is he actually recognizes that culture is not enough. As Professor Hittinger mentioned, George wasn't comfortable with Father John Courtney Murray's division between the private and public spheres. He could see that the secular neutrality of the juridical order is a myth. And just as culture shapes law, law also shapes culture. And this is also a primary theme of, of his book, God in Action. Um, and this leads to some interesting conclusions, which is perhaps an opening for Catholics um, to, to take a more active role in the political sphere and even think more about the nature of the state and what the role of the state is too, in addition to thinking about culture. Um, so I guess I'll just stop there for now, but <laughs> thank you very much. Well, my thanks to uh, all, all three of you for some very, very uh, thought-provoking and well-articulated observations. Uh, before we move to our conversation among the panelists, I just want to remind folks who are watching uh, that there is a Q&A button, uh, which should be appearing on your screen. And you are more than welcome to uh, submit your questions there. And we will get to them uh, later on in the program. I think each of you mentioned John Courtney Murray. Um, we're, of course, very proud of our association with John Courtney Murray at America Magazine. He was an associate editor, editor there for almost 20 years. And it seems to me that all roads uh, in American 
political theology have to go go through Murray at some point, have to contend with Murray's uh, work. Um, it's unfortunate really that he died so young and he wasn't able to complete it. Um, now he identifies in, uh, we hold these truths that the, the, the question which he feels is absolutely essential to answer is this, is the American proposition, is American political and civic life uh, compatible with Catholicism, with a Orthodox uh, Catholic uh, understanding. And generally, broadly speaking, his answer to that in We Hold These Truths was yes. And then he began to lay out some, some reasons for that. So I'd like to begin by, by asking each of you this, is that question still the most important question? in this moment in which we're living as the title of this uh, conversation in, uh, uh, says, in this moment in which we're living, uh, you know, beyond the immediate crises, which we'll also talk about in a second, is that compatibility question the most important question? And if it isn't, uh, then what is? And uh, why don't we begin with you, Professor Hittinger? As I mentioned at the beginning, I think that uh, Ireland, Murray, and Cardinal George would have all been on the same page uh, in answering the question, is it compatible? Is the American experiment compatible with the Catholic, compatible with the Catholic mind? They all would have said philosophically and theologically, not very much. I mean, Murray explicitly argues that about John Locke and we hold these truths. But Murray wanted to say, it's just a nominalist version of natural law. Uh, it was somewhat useful for our founders in understanding some transcendent dimension of the American regime, but we should swap it out for a, uh, an adequate Thomism as soon as possible if we could. By the way, Rusty's Brownson thought the same thing. This is an old Catholic position to distinguish between uh, the institutions and the thought that led to them or that animates them. But you know, Cardinal George goes right after that, uh, after Murray on this very point. And uh, in his 1998 address at the University of Chicago, not in God in Action. I should point out that he says that Murray toward the end of his life began to understand that Lockean nominalism is the signal that underneath the natural law theory, it's Hobbes. And he devoted maybe 25% of that lecture at U of C to why Hobbes is the soul of America. And he mentions three points uh, that the individual is not a self-directing person. Uh, uh, he is rather a conjury of desires focused on self-preservation. That's the, that's, that's the American soul that our institutions are geared to protect. Second, the Hobbesian man views society and other persons not in terms of a possibility of a real union a communio, 
but essentially as a rivalry and a competition. We even, of course, regard our branches of government in that, in that fashion. Uh, and he says, third, that uh, the sovereign is guided by no transcendent norm or vision or even sense of the common good. The sovereign is there as a kind of manager with force to protect individual freedoms and security and peace. So here is uh, only to reformulate your question because it, it is the right question. How much of this was soul and how much of this was institutions or is Cardinal George correct from the very beginning? What we didn't like about the soul is what we should be very suspicious about in, with the institutions. Your thoughts, Professor Smart? Yes, thank you very much. Um, you know, I was just sitting here thinking about how important that question is about the American proposition. And I wonder if, um, I'm not sure exactly how Cardinal George would respond, but it seems as though he's increasingly worried about regardless of what the American proposition was, he's worried about how far it is that we've come um, culturally. And so I almost wonder if debating about the nature of the American proposition and its um, validity is almost secondary to thinking about the nature of Christian hope. Because regardless of how it is that our community has become so secularized, regardless of how it is that we've come to the point that we have, um, I think in the reaction to our current moment, we've seen a lot of people who want to grab onto power and kind of fight power with power. And I think that Cardinal George would also see this as kind of dangerous. And he would encourage people to think um, through a lens of eternity, to think more about providence and to think in terms of Christian hope. So maybe just the question of like, how can we be hopeful in our current um, moment? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good response, but yeah. Let me do that. Professor Schneck. I think that is the question, uh, Father Matt, honestly. Um, but I, I'd kind of like to separate um, the ideology of America from the practice of America. And I think that it's in the practice of America that we actually find something, uh, you know, very interesting. So, you know, if we look at the ideology of America, then, you know, we think of American politics and American culture and American economics in terms of individuals really fairly radical individuals, all in competition with one another in various forms of meritocracy and invisible hands and so forth. Um, that's the ideology. And, 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 and frankly, that ideology has been done no favors by, by Hollywood and you know, um, you, know, the, you know, the image of how the country was settled and so forth, you know, it being this you know, lone cowboy you know, out there on the range all by himself and so forth. But if, if that's the ideology, what we could do is, I think there's something much more Catholic about, about the, you know, the pragmatic reality of America. 
you know, the, those towns in the West weren't actually settled by lone cowboys. You know, they were, they were real communities. They were communities, in fact, that were often brought over from the whole country in total. Whole villages came from Germany and Ireland and so forth and, you know, settled down in Kansas and, and, and such. And if you think about how those communities work, you know, I think the image of America is not Wall Street. I think the image of America is, is, is how, back in my native state in Iowa, how people got together to build barns, where all of the neighbors came together and, and worked in cooperation with one another to put together a barn for you know, somebody who had lost one or you know, somebody who would need one. Um, I think, I think that's, that practical reality of America is something that we're seeing around us right now amidst this terrible COVID crisis. There's a, you know, here in Washington, you know, people are playing guitars on their, on their patios for their neighbors. Yeah, yeah, you know, people are volunteering to, uh, you know, pick up uh, groceries for old folks. I think that practical reality, which is the real America, is very much in keeping with the communio philosophy that um, theology that uh, Cardinal George you know, so strongly advocates. And I think that it's so much in keeping with all of the best traditions of Catholic social thought and, and Catholic moral teaching. So uh, I, I just think we need to separate the two a little bit. Do you agree with that, Professor Hessinger? Oh, you might have to unmute your microphone. There I am. Um, American life on the ground is always better than the way it appears in theory. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's always better. I mean, even Catholic, uh, Catholic social thought in America is primarily to be understood on the ground. I mean, it's an incredibly dynamic church with regard to charities, corporal works of mercies, et cetera, et cetera. It always looks good closer to the ground. So with that, I would agree, uh, but I, I would want to keep alive Cardinal George's problem of institutions and the soul that motivates them. Uh, well, we'll see. I mean, I mean, the story is not uh, settled yet. <laughs> I mean, I mean, the American story is not over and, and it's not settled, but uh, he argues and got in action that in the United States, power is put at the center of reality, power. And there is, there is considerable truth in that. And uh, I'll give you one example. Uh, in, uh, in Vietnam, we entered that war for the purpose of uh, uh, protecting Asia from being overrun by uh, communism and all of the ills and deformities that would be brought in that event. Uh, by the time of the Iraq war, we go to war for the longest war we've ever fought for merely the hint that there is a weapon somewhere that might be used against us. It looks pretty Hobbesian to me. Yeah. Professor Schneck, you wanted to jump in? I, I just want to amend my what I what I said in one important regard. Um, 
I, it seems like I'm coming across as as uh, fundamentally anti-liberal, and that's that's really not where I am. Um, I, I absolutely fundamentally do believe that um, that we can square uh, Catholic moral and social thinking with democracy and 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 with an, an understanding of uh, a fundamental value of human rights. So I want to be really careful not to not to kind of jettison that while I'm I'm recognizing the tension between um, uh, you know our faith and and the ideology of Americanism. Hmm. Professor Smart, I I think something that you said really struck a, a chord with me because of course we're I, I was reviewing these texts leading up to today's conversation and. Uh, you know, always, of course, in uh, in in you know taking a deep dive into this thought, uh, you uh, you have the sense of what, but what does this really mean? What is what is what is what does our praxis look like, right? <laughs> in light of uh, these sort of um, you know these these insights, because it seems to me that um, you know we 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 might risk. Uh, Looking like the Jesuit in in Camus' plague, right? It's <laughs> <You know, laughs> <except> there. <laughs> doesn't go, doesn't come off very well, right? <laughs> um, and you know, who's who's uh, builds a beautiful philosophical theological house, but no one can live in it, and in fact, people are dying around him, and he seems to be missing that, right? Um, so, how if if as as you suggest, the the question is better situated around. Uh, a properly theological term like hope, right? Um, what is a what is a praxis of re, of response to the insights of, of Cardinal George look like in light of, of Christian hope? Yeah, that's a really good question because I didn't intend to imply any sort of passivism, but I think that it's actually the opposite. It's the lack of hope that actually leads to despair and inactivity. Um, I think that it's necessary to kind of preserve one's understanding of our ultimate end in order to carry out any sort of um, truly effective and good action in the world. Um, but what that looks like, I mean, for Cardinal George, it is very active. What he's saying is you don't abandon the sphere of law to those who um, might currently be in power. You know, I think He's speaking from within the church. And what he would say is that the church as an institution needs to evangelize its own so that they can then go out and infuse whatever activities it is that they do um, with the church's teaching. And so this includes people in every sphere of life. It's kind of like an integrated approach. Um, so those who are trained in law, those who do enter politics, they too need to think about using the tools proper to their professions um, to bring about a more just order. And so it's not that power is irrelevant, you know, because that is um, legitimate within the political realm. But I think that when power is sought sort of on the same terms that those who would kind of eliminate God from the public sphere use it, um, then you have a problem. And so it's not good to seek it for its own sake um, in a way that's going to overwhelm the things that are good <laughs> about America. Um, 
I'm not sure if that makes sense, but no, yeah, I mean, it it's a very, it's hard to say what the praxis is because it's going to differ for every person, but it should kind of infuse all of the spirits of human activity. So if, uh, if it's important to also be concerned with the lived experience of people, uh, in other words, you know, how, how does this, how does, how does this question just to take the compatibility question, how does this play out in, in one person's life, right? Or in the life of the community? Uh, is this particular policy, is that particular action, is this particular um, uh, engagement uh, compatible with a, with a properly Christian faith? Then it does seem to me that there might be something to Professor Schneck's point that mm -hmm. the, the critique of American uh, style capitalism is a is is somewhat underdeveloped in Cardinal George's thought. Um, Professor Hittinger, do you agree or disagree? I agree that in God in Action, he he notes the uh, some of the deficiencies of the American economic system, uh, but he doesn't drill on it the way he does on other issues, mm. such as integrity of the body, uh, religious liberty, uh, the, the anthropology of the acting subject and what freedom is. When he gets to the economic section, it is not as deep. Mm. And you notice because you, when you see Cardinal George peeling back layer after layer of a philosophical and social question, he's not doing that in the chapter on economics. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I noticed the same thing when I read that. Why do you think that was? It, it could be that he simply wasn't ready to do it. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> right, sure. Professor Schneck? Oh. Since it was my point, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that it's quite clear. His, his philosophical and, and theological anthropology is so deep and so compelling. And, and his critique of American culture, uh, I, I think, is, is absolutely devastating. And it's, it, it, I, I have to say, you know, back to where I started, that, uh, you know, it, I, I feel he has this powerful... Um, you know, scope by which to look at culture and frankly politics, but he, he doesn't seem to turn that scope, you know, um, you know, fully in the direction of uh, the American economic situation. And, and I, I, you know, I, I think that any fair reading of his thought would have to extend his thinking uh, ultimately to, uh, you know, include, uh, um, you know, I think a thoroughgoing critique of American style capitalism. I think that it's, it's um, you know, it's patently there for, you know, a future scholar to develop. Yeah, I agree with you that it's a, it's a curious uh, element to have underdeveloped because uh, it's such a, it's, it pervades every part of American life, right? Um, do, you, do you have any idea why it might be underdeveloped in this thought? Did he just think he lacked the expertise to do it? Um. I, I don't. I mean, I guess that's it's a conundrum to me why he doesn't, because it seems so clear to me. And, and mm -hmm. I mean, it obviously seems clear to Russ as well. So, uh, you know, I'm curious why he doesn't 
uh, you know, open that that chapter of his analysis. It seems such like such a logical extension from, sure. from you know, from where he is. Well, as you note, uh, there is uh, just shifting gears a little bit. There is a a deep and powerful. I think we all would agree a deep uh, and powerful anthropology at work in his thought, which is the uh, the this notion of communio that we are um, we are we're almost called into being by virtue of uh, relationship. Uh, it's an interesting thing to contemplate at this moment when we're not even able to be in the same room with each other, <laughs> right? Um, when we have, we've all had to self-atomize, right? Uh, and, and withdraw from the community for the, for the sake of, the, of a greater good. Um, what, in, as you were rereading, taking a look at his work this week, what, what, was there anything that struck you um, in his thought that could speak to specifically the twin crises that we face now of uh, a pandemic and uh, economic collapse and whoever would like to go first. Hmm. Hmm. Frankly, I'd like to hear from Russ. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think Cardinal George's uh, suspicion that early, first, early 21st century life is chiefly about managing uh, sort of a managerial approach to power and profit to uh, uh, manage the risks in our life that uh, that has to be transcended by something, uh, well, he calls it in God in Action, the gift. People have to learn uh, the gift of self and the gift of other things along with oneself uh, that escape the logic of the managerial how to put it, the managerial funneling of everything in our life. And of course, this would be, this is very difficult and uh, it would require a completely different kind of book than the one he wrote to do that. <laughs> did you have some, uh, did you have a thought, Professor Smart? Yeah. Um... I don't know about the economic collapse part, but I've been thinking a lot recently just about the lack of access to the sacraments as many Catholics have. Um, and I've been thinking about what it says about our current order that all of the doors of the churches have been locked at a time like this. And I don't want to um, come across as, um, you know, having any skepticism about, you know, the magnitude of the virus or anything. But I do wonder if this is communicating to people that the sacraments are not somehow essential. And I, I wonder mm. if Cardinal George, had he been here, might actually have been more um, publicly vocal about the fact that the sacraments are essential 
and we are not taking our marching orders from the state. Perhaps the church could say something like, we've come to our own decision for prudential reasons to um, you know, stop masses or take certain prudential precautions. But I also think that there's kind of been a failure of imagination on the church's part during this time in that it hasn't actually taken to the streets and found ways to bring um, the sacraments to people or just at least even stay, stay in touch with parishioners during this time. I've been kind of disappointed by some of the decisions that I've seen. Um, and so I don't know how those decisions were come to, but to me, it does signal a kind of abandonment of the spiritual sphere for the physical. Um, and I think that that's something that at least in his work, Cardinal George wouldn't agree with. Um, yeah, so. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure actually. Um, I, uh, 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 I'm thinking about what, what you just said, but you, what, on, on one hand, Cardinal George has this, this powerful conception of the incarnate nature of human existence. I mean, the body really matters. I mean, this is a, you know, a man that wore a leg brace his, his whole life. I mean, the body is something that's, that's uh, um, you know, that, that has a gravitas in his thinking. Um, you know, so, you know, I don't think he takes the body lightly. And, um, you know, so I, I'm not 100% sure I agree with you. And, and I, I have to say, uh, this is going a little bit off topic, but there's really been a fluorescence of spirituality in this moment. Um, uh, I mean, I see it everywhere, but you know, I have to give Pope Francis just enormous credit. I mean, that that picture of him holding up the monstrance in an absolutely naked and empty St. Peter's Square. I mean, that that does something to our souls that that feeds our souls i mean it's not a sacrament of course but there's something there I, and i i think that cardinal george would have applauded that as well yeah i don't think that um i would dismiss the body in any way but simply seeing about seeing how other sectors of society have mobilized to serve people in imaginative ways at this time you know for example i spent two hours this afternoon at a food bank where I wore a mask, I wore gloves, <laughs> I was packing boxes of lunches for children, you know, <laughs> right. just something very tiny, very um, tedious, you know, but I just haven't seen the priests in my diocese acting in similarly imaginative ways to remain in contact with their people. Um, and I know that for a fact that it's because of an order from the bishop that expressly prohibited them from doing such things should they choose to. And so I'm just not sure what I think about that, <laughs> that those kind of prohibitions handed down That's from above true. that don't allow creative ways to both um, stay in touch with people and continue forming them spiritually while at the same time maintaining the necessary precautions for bodily health. Professor Hittinger, do you have a, a comment about that before we go to the group questions? Well, I have, I have no problem myself with the policy, but I have to agree with Teresa. There was 
something missing. <laughs> the policy to me seems very reasonable for the sake of thousands upon thousands of lives and our children and families and old people. Uh, the, the policy of social distancing makes sense to me. But it did seem to many Catholics, including me, that the policy was stated too quickly and without some regret. In other words, it, it was like, well, see you guys next Lent or something. <laughs> it, it was too easy. Although I, I think the policy is very defensible. Yeah. I mean, maybe that even would be enough, would be to see more communication from priests and bishops, you know, a rhetoric <laughs> that says the sacraments are essential, even though we can't offer I, I utterly agree with that. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I think that that's probably true. I had a similar thought as uh, I was reviewing the materials for today. It, it, I would really, I would really have loved to have seen Cardinal George respond to that to this moment and uh, how he would have dealt with that decision. And uh, it wasn't clear to me, and still isn't, how he where he would have come down on it. Um, I mean, the his suspicion, which is a word that's come up a couple of times, his deep suspicion of the state, and um, Right. Uh, and you know his fear of the encroachment of the state on the freedom of the church would have would have come up against this very basic human reality and need. And um, I, it would have been fascinating to have him here with us. We'll have to pray for his uh, intercession <laughs> as we continue to discern that. So we have a, a couple of questions from um, folks who are watching, and thank you all for doing that. Um, I just. I've had, they've been open for this entire conversation. Now I just close them. Uh, so the, the so the first question um, comes to us from uh, uh, C.J. Wolf at the University of St. Thomas. Um, why did Cardinal George not see the institutional breakdown? as a result of insufficient ideas at the founding. Is there an alternate explanation for the institutional breakdown of the American regime that he pointed to? Um, is it ideas other than those the founding affecting it? But I would like to address that. Well, as I pointed out a few minutes ago, I think he did think the ideas at the time of the founding were quite inadequate. And by simply the addition or the postulate of something that's very weak at the beginning is going to expose itself eventually. Right. Um, so I, I think that George, Cardinal George, listen, for him, if you said our fathers, you're talking about the Cappadocian fathers and the North African <laughs> fathers, you're not talking about uh, the, the founding fathers the way we do. And that was simply Cardinal George. But uh, I think uh, his point of view is an important point of view on this. He, he, he definitely was uh, against any notion of American exceptional, exceptionalism, uh, America as a redeemer nation, 
as America is having, you know, uh, uh, bestowed upon the world uh, something that was uh, all you have to do is unpack it and blow it up and it will do all sorts of magical things. That's not the way he thought about uh, the American history. So um, he could have spent more time, I understand why he didn't, on the, on the problem of Protestantism. But I understand why he Good didn't. Point. I, uh, I understand why he didn't, because uh, he thought that our inheritance was Calvinist. And what happened when the Calvinist establishment, what we used to call the, the main churches on the main line, that when they went south oh, during his own lifetime, 40s and 50s is when that process began, that what replaced the Calvinist establishment was simply the Hobbesian conjuries of desires. I think I'm accurately reporting his, but I would have liked to have read much more about that. And um, so. Yeah, I, I also would have liked to have read a bit more about that. I understand, I understand why he didn't in, um, in John Courtney Murray, but he was so uh, eager to avoid that question. Um, but there is something there is, because he was eager to show that compatibility via natural law with Catholicism that it sort of avoided what I what I think Cardinal George understood to be a profoundly Calvinistic worldview that in, that was at the heart of the founding. So there is a, a, a so one a related question uh, from Michael Sweeney is um, presuming this Hobbesian influence uh, does the American idea permit an eschatological vision that is essential to hope. P Professor Smart, maybe you'd like to address that? Yeah, let me see here. Does American ideology permit an eschatological vision that's essential to hope? I presume that, that he means the American idea or the American proposition or that includes this Hobbesian element as we describe it. Yeah, I mean, I think that if you if you define American imagination in line with this Hobbesian ideology, then no. <laughs> you know, it's more concerned with comfortable complacency in a this-worldly sense. But I don't, you know, like Professor Schneck was saying, I don't think that that's all that Americans in practice are. I think that America at our founding was actually a more complex kind of amalgamation, both of that more kind of classical liberal ideology, but also of civic republicanism and puritanism and other types of ideas that were much more congenial to religion. Um, so I think that there's always room in the human imagination for hope. And I think that that's something that we can look to um, rather than thinking that our collective imagination has to be confined in some way by one ideology that um, fed into it in the past. I, I would say, I, to, to, to uh, add a little bit to, to uh, what Professor Smart is saying, um, I, I think that in the American context, hope is all about open horizons. 
and not having a, 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 a defined horizon. And in, and, and in a sense, then not having an ultimate end, uh, which of course is just, uh, you know, contrary to the way we Catholics think. But th there is a kind of a hope, um, you know, in the idea of an open horizon, that there's new things, always new things to be discovered. Um, you know, that's, a, yeah, you know, I mean, that's, you know, maybe a trivial way to put it. But, I, you know, I do think there is a kind of an American hope that isn't eschatological that's still kind of interesting. Well, remember that at the beginning of the book, Cardinal George explains the title, God in Action. And his thesis is that through a very complex modern history, we have inherited a lot of different ideas that coalesce in one direction, which is that God might exist, but he can't act. You remember that was that early chapter, he can't act. Mm -hmm. And so in, in order to even have a flawed eschatological notion, like regarding America as a redeemer nation, <laughs> right. at least that believed that God can act through his lowly servant, the United States, right? But uh, the, the, the deism, the materialism, the individualism, the fact that good things come about, about not even by human beings acting. That's the whole point that Professor Schrenk was raising about the market. All the good stuff that's brought to light is brought to light behind the back, even of individual action. Magically. So uh, yeah, that, that, that really cabins eschat, I mean, eschatology. So what we would look for if Cardinal George is correct in his discernment in his analysis is the best we could hope for is a machine that will make the virus go away. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, we also have a question from the distinguished uh, Peter Henriot, uh, a Jesuit who's written quite uh, a lot on these issues and on questions of social analysis. Uh, what must we do to ensure that pro-life social teaching today includes the full range of pro-life issues emphasized by Pope Francis, death penalty, nuclear arms, climate change. This full view of pro-life was recognized many times by Cardinal George. I suppose a related question that I might have is, is, is our inability sometimes as church to see the interconnectedness of those issues uh, because we sometimes import the partisanship and polarization that yeah. exists in the culture outside the church into the church? That was gonna be my answer. Um, that, you know, I, I think that the major obstacle, you know, for grasping the, you know, the whole conception of the culture of life is American polarization. And, you know, the fact that um, even in our pews, uh, we divide ourselves um, between red and blue. And, you know, that is the, in, in so many ways, you know, one of the most fundamental problems facing the church in the United States. And Cardinal George was at the forefront among those people who realized that. Um, but it's still a problem. Okay. And uh, another question that is at uh, from uh, Bill Purcell at uh, Notre Dame. Um, Cardinal Francis George in his pastoral letter, Dwell in My Love, was the first American pastoral 
was the first American pastoral letter that mentioned white privilege, quote unquote, as a problem uh, and of racism in our nation. How did his perspective in addressing the sin of racism add to the Catholic social tradition of the United States? Senate races? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, Bill, it, the question was, uh, did, so the, the questioner thinks that, uh, that the, the phrase white privilege was introduced for the first time in an American pastoral letter by Cardinal George. Now, whether that might be true or not, but the, the question is, how did his perspective in addressing the sin of racism add to the Catholic social tradition in the United States? another reality, of course, we've lived with since the founding of the country. Right, right. Well, he, he was certainly outspoken among the bishops in encouraging, um, you know, the institutional church in the United States to address uh, racism. Um, you know, I, 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 I would guess that you folks on the ground in Chicago would have a better, better feel for uh, you know, what this meant in the Archdiocese. Okay. Uh, this question comes from uh, Jack Roslowski, who's wa watching from New York. Uh, Cardinal George had an opportunity to put his thinking into action in his, uh, in his uh, episcopate. Uh, what can we take from his lived experience as a leader uh, as we think about uh, the American experiment? Well, for one thing, I think it's safe to say that he was not shy about <laughs> just publicly defending the freedom of the church where he thought that the, uh, the, the, the state was encroaching on it. But your thoughts? Well, he wasn't, not only was he not shy, but when he spoke his mind, there was still a level of congeniality that was there for everyone to see. Mm. Um, but maybe I can go back to two questions ago for this one that you just posed. Here's the problem about the proper integration of all of the life issues. Part of it really is policy. Uh, in other words, it's one thing to try to unite them philosophically and theologically and to, to do it in, in, in new ways, but as a public person to stand in the pulpit to be Archbishop of Chicago or to be the Senator from Illinois or whatever one's position might be, to get a balanced and true position on this in the language of policy is almost impossible. You're gonna to have to move from carbon tax credits to uh, uh, family law to uh, all around the horn. I mean, that would be very difficult to do in a way that would be convincing. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it would be at least very difficult. Uh, and so I would urge that we get our act together first philosophically 
In other words, put aside temporarily the policy disagreements, the red versus blue, the polarization, and to think about what, what the integrity of a philosophical position would be. Uh, uh, the way the Pope Francis uses it in uh, Laudato Si, that okay. uh, integral ecology, it's, it's sociological, it's spiritual, it's material. Uh, so if we're not confident on the philosophical level about this, we're gonna be completely lost at the policy level because the policy level would test the metal of even the smartest philosophers, right? Um, it also seems to me that uh, getting back to John Courtney Murray that agreeing on the philosophical principles is, is what makes argument in the truest sense possible, right? Uh, that, that, that's argue. right. Yeah, right. Um, so uh, we're about out of time, but we've had uh, several questions have been raised about integralism, uh, which uh, is getting a bit of play these days in Catholic intellectual circles. Um, what would a government structure founded upon Thomistic principles look like? And would Cardinal George support Catholic integralism as it's being depicted by modern scholars today? Uh, I'll take a stab at that. Okay. Um, if integralism, the way it's understood today or the month of April, 2020, uh, includes a principled disrespect for a Republican form of government, then of course, Cardinal George, George wouldn't have gone for any, that kind of integralism. I mean, the, the American Catholic experiment has always had respect for Republican government. It was the one thing that uh, made us different than the Europeans is that we were agreeable to Republican government and uh, we wanted to improve it and to maintain it, perhaps on terms better than our founders, but nevertheless, Republican government. And the way I understand, I'm sure very imperfectly, uh, the integralist arguments today, it is for an amalgamation of powers for a common good, but not powers that are ours, not as a public thing that's ours. And it it would it would be uh, hmm. it would be very sad if the Catholic philosophical tradition and the tradition of his political authority would take the turn of just being systematically hostile to to the republic. It seems to me that Cardinal George is pretty clear in his work that um, he is not proposing anything that even closely resembles a theocracy. Uh, in fact, I remember having this conversation uh, with him once in Chicago where he, he, he said, we don't actually, we don't need a theocracy because strictly speaking, we already live in one, right? God is holding the whole world in being. Um, we need another way of being together. Um, so it was a fascinating insight, but also if, if you, if that is your worldview, then then uh, that reality is subversive of creaturely notions of power, isn't it? Rather than um, 
during the struggle. So uh, I think we're about out of time uh, and I'm gonna hand it back to Michael. Thank you to the panelists and thank you all for listening, being part of this fascinating conversation. Right, I wanna echo um, Father Matt's uh, thanks to you, the panelists on behalf of the Lumen Christi Institute, um, to all of you out there. We've had a wide ranging conversation um, and I know particularly this economic question has come up quite a bit, um, having played the role at Lumen Christi of helping to organize our conferences on economics and Catholic social thought um, that Cardinal George actually helped initiate um, back in 2008. I know that it was a live um, dialogue, a live question, even if we don't in his writings um, have the type of developed uh, conversation. So I invite you all to actually go to our website, www.lumenchristi.org, um, and you can go and even see um, some of the speeches that he gave um, um, at those conferences as he um, invited this dialogical approach, bringing ethicists, bishops, and economists together, um, which uh, for anyone who's been in the academy, um, certainly having humanists and economists in the room itself is uh, a bit of a Christmas miracle at times. So um, otherwise, I, I would invite you to um, also visit our website if you want to help support our mission um, to make the Catholic intellectual tradition a living tradition at the University of Chicago and now across the nation through webinars like these. Um, but otherwise, once more, I want to thank our panelists um, and thank our moderator for an excellent conversation. Um, and I hope that you all have a wonderful night. Ciao. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. Or at the very least, let's not have another Lent like this one.